turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. That's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, It's a very, very challenging passage tonight, a very difficult passage um, to preach, a very difficult passage to understand. Um, So far in Ecclesiastes, the the teacher, as he uh, is known, he has that very cool name of just the teacher. The teacher has been sharing with us his observations on life and giving some teaching based upon his observations. And his main aim is to try and find the best way that we can live in life. What is the most satisfactory way to exist? Um, he, He wants to do this, but he wants to do it in a way that goes with the grain of reality, in a way that doesn't try and escape from some of the difficulties that we face in life. Uh, Andy Buchan last week used the illustration of him being like a, a wiser, older man who's sitting down with us and taking out a photo album of his life and showing us all these amazing things that he has done and what he has learnt from doing these things. Well, tonight in chapter 7, he's going to put the photo album down on the coffee table and he's going to sit with us and he's going to give us some wisdom on how we should live in life, some wisdom based upon his experience. That is what is happening in this chapter. So let's read, let's actually read from verse 10 of chapter 6, because I think that's where the section begins. So Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. The more words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? A good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed a wise man's rebuke than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is just a breath. Extortion turns a wise man into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is the shelter, as money is the shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. In this mere breath of life of mine, I've seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be overrighteous, neither be overwise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. 
Wisdom makes one man, one wise man, more powerful than ten rulers in the city. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourselves have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever wisdom may be, it is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? So I turned my mind to understand and to, vet and to investigate and to search out wisdom in the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Luke says the teacher, this is what I have discovered, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. While I was still searching, but not finding, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. This only I have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Now, there would undoubtedly be a few things in there that would have raised a few eyebrows. Um, don't worry. The teacher's not a sexist. We'll get to that bit. The, the famous um, uh, storyteller Hans Christian Andersen wrote many good tales that often conveyed profound points. Uh, and one story I particularly like is The Emperor's New Clothes. Uh, I'm sure we all know that story well. But it's about an arrogant emperor who hires two tailors to make him an outfit. And these tailors manage to convince them that they have made the most amazing outfit possible out of these invisible threads but it's only if you're really smart that you'll be able to see it. And so the emperor, sort of blinded by his arrogance, claims that, oh yes, I can see this outfit. It, it looks great. And he wears it, and he walks and parades down the street <laughs> in no clothes on at all. But everyone there, not wanting to look stupid, sees this and thinks, oh yes, we can see it. It's great. It looks brilliant. Until at that moment, a little boy comes out from amongst the crowd points to the emperor, laughs, and says, the emperor's got no clothes on. Well, in many ways, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is like that. The teacher here wants to teach us wisdom, but his wisdom is to point us to the most glaringly obvious facts of reality that we often try and ignore and try and escape from. Because wisdom for the teacher is not just about making the right decisions in life, but it's about having a right understanding of reality, a right understanding of the world that we live in. And at first glance, this passage is just really confusing. It seems just like a random uh, group of proverbs all randomly stuck together. Uh, and I'll not lie, it's been a challenge for me in preparing for this. Um, I went to a commentary to try and get some help, and this is uh, the helpful advice that I read in the first line of the commentary about this passage. The commentator says, it is hard to, uh, it's hard to be satisfied with any commentary on this section. It is very difficult to understand. <laughs> there goes the, the Old Testament scholar, so thank you for that. Um, but there is, uh, there is a thread that runs all throughout this chapter. 
there is one big theme in the teacher's wisdom, and it's really set up there in chapter 6, verse 10. That's why I read it. He says in that verse, whatever exists has already been named, and what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. So in other words, the teacher is saying that that everything has been determined in this reality by God. That's the person who's stronger than us. He has named it and he has determined it. And we cannot contend with him. God has determined everything that that has happened here. And therefore, if we are to be wise, we are to accept things as they are and not be an escapist. And I've summed up the point of this chapter, uh, and I've put it on your sheets there, um, just to help us as we look through it. And I think that it could be summed up in this way. The teacher is saying to us, accept the limitations God has placed on you and trust him. That is what the thread that connects all these proverbs together is. Accept the limitations that God has placed on you and trust him. You see, this... Like the little boy in that tale, the teacher points us to the obvious facts that many of us often ignore. But he does so not in a way that will lead us to drift into um, despairing introspection, but in a way that will cause us to take our eyes off our limited, finite selves and place them on the infinite creator God. So, As we look through this, I've split it up into three sections. I have it outlined on the back of your sheet there just to help you as we navigate through this very challenging passage. Firstly, says the teacher, wisdom comes when we recognize that death is our destiny. Wisdom comes when we recognize death is our destiny. Verses 1 to 6 are are quite a stark read. Uh, I mean, it starts off quite nice. A good name is better than fine perfume. So it's better to have people speak well of you than to smell like a bed of roses. Your, your reputation amongst others is more important than, than your externals. And I think we'd probably all agree with that and give a hearty amen to the preacher. But look how he follows that. He says, in just the same way then, the day of death is better than the day of birth. <laughs> now what does he mean by that? Because as we read this, we we will agree with the first proverb, but I don't think there's many of us here who think that the day of death is better than the day of birth. In fact, the teacher himself, throughout Ecclesiastes, seems to lament the reality of death. Death in the Bible is not seen as a good thing. It's a horrible thing. It's a blasphemous thing. And he says in chapter 9, verse 4, that it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. The verse that follows verse 1 may be helpful in understanding his context. It is better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. I think what, what he's saying here in these verses is that death is better than birth in the sense that death is a better teacher of wisdom. He's not saying that the funeral home is a more joyful place than the maternity ward. But he is saying that if you are to be wise in life, don't look back to your birth and what could have been, but look forward to your death. Recognize that that your life is fleeting. 
One day we are going to die. The wise person doesn't look back to his birth and what he could have done with his life, but he looks forward to his death and tells himself, I am going to die. Therefore, what is the best way that I can live in life now? The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure, says the teacher. The wise man goes into a funeral and he looks at the coffin and he says, one day that will be me. What will they say about me at my funeral? What will they say about me and how I've lived my life? The foolish person goes to the funeral and thinks to himself, this is morbid. I can't wait until this is over so I can be out in the sunshine, so I can go to the pub and party with my friends. The teacher's not a killjoy here. We've seen throughout Ecclesiastes, he does commend the enjoyment of life. But he wants to do so in a way that embraces reality. And if we use pleasure in life, if we use the pleasure of life so that we can anesthetize ourselves to the reality of death, the teacher would say, you're being a fool. No one thinks about life's big questions at the party. But in the funeral home, the teacher tells us, that is where we are forced to confront reality. The coffin is a better teacher than the crib. Wisdom is about embracing what's real. That's why the wise person, that's why he can heed another wise man's rebuke, as the teacher says in verse 5. Far better to listen to the rebuke of a friend who wants you to be wise than spend your days trying to go on to X Factor. It's essentially what he's saying. And spending your days in a fantasy land, pretending that everything's all right, ignoring people's rebukes of you, ignoring your mortality and living for laughter. The kind of laughter, the teacher says, is like crackling of thorns under a pot. In other words, it's nothing more than a noise that's quickly consumed and then gone. Don't listen to the song and the laughter of folly to escape the mundanity of life and the inevitability of death. Wisdom, says the teacher, comes when we accept the fact that death is our destiny. Because when we do do that, it doesn't create in us morbidity, but it gives depth to our character. I don't know about you, but some of the the wisest uh, older people that I know are people who have gone through really difficult times, people who have experienced the reality of death. We know we're going to die. But there's something else. I think when looking through Ecclesiastes, we've always got to bear this in mind. The teacher lives in a time long before the time of Jesus. So there's something that we can know for certain that actually the teacher doesn't know for certain. And he says it there at the end of chapter 6, verse 12. He says, who can tell us what will happen after we're gone? Who can tell us what will happen after we die? He doesn't know. But we can know for certain. Because Jesus Christ, God himself, has come down to us. He has suffered, he has died, and he has risen from the grave. He has defeated death itself. He can tell us what will happen after we die. And therefore, we can look forward, in fact, we should look forward, if we're followers of Jesus, to our death, but not in a way that is despairing, looking forward with hope. 
Knowing that we are going to die will teach us to make the best use of the time that we have now. And as followers of Jesus, there is one labor that we do that is not in vain, that is eternal. And that's telling others about him. Everything else that we have in life will fade out. All the stuff you own is just the stuff of future car boot sales. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that endures forever. Let your limitations teach you to live wisely, to make the best use of this time that God has given you, to use this brief breath of life that you have to do his work. What will they say at your funeral? What will they say about you? The one thing that we really should be striving for to be said at our funeral is not, oh, they were a nice person. But didn't they love Jesus? Didn't they want others to know about Jesus? Because it's the work done for Jesus that has lasting significance. So be wise, the teacher says. Look forward to your death and recognize that you are mortal. Secondly then, the teacher wants us to be wise and accept the fact that life is sometimes hard and out with our control. That's from verses 7 through to 14 of chapter 7. And in verse 7 to 10 there, the teacher lays out some of the temptations that we may face in life uh, when we are confronted with hardship. Um, he says that there's the temptation of extortion in verse 7. It's the temptation of impatience, verse 8. The temptation of anger, verse 9. And the temptation of nostalgia in verse 10. The teacher says that when the difficult times come, the wise person will know how to handle these temptations. Because actually, if you look at these temptations, these temptations are really just another form of escapism. So extortion is a way of escaping from responsibility. Impatience is a way of escaping dealing with troubles when they come. Being quick to anger is a way of escaping your ability to cope with issues. And nostalgia is just about escaping present hardships by comparing them to an often idealized version of the past. Verse 10 is a great verse, isn't it? Uh, how many times have we said that or heard that being said in verse 10? Weren't the old days better than this? I mean, I'm only 26, but I've said it quite a, a few times. Um, we were talking at lunch about how TV was so much better back in the day in the 90s. And we were using Crystal Maze as an example. Like, oh, what a wonderful, innovative program. Uh, and then actually, when you watch Crystal Maze, you realize it's rubbish. Um, and we have that. We have an often idealized uh, understanding of what the past was like. Oh, things were so much better in our day. And yet, when you go back to that day, there was people saying the exact same thing. Things were so much better in my day. I've, on a more serious note, I've heard Christians lament constantly about, about how good the church used to be, about how wonderful things used to be in Scotland. And nine times out of ten, it's not true. But even if it were, it's not wise to make such a statement, says the teacher. And I think the reason he's saying it's not wise to think like that is because it ignores the reality of God's presence in the present God is not just the God of the past, but he's the God who's in control of what's happening now. When times are hard, says the teacher, don't try and escape from them, but use your wisdom. 
Wisdom can, is great because it can really very often stop hard times from getting worse. Because, as verse 11 says, um, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. It benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is the shelter, as money is the shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, that wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Wisdom offers protection. It can stop you from making decisions that could be potentially damaging. It can help you when the going gets tough. But when hard times just seem to come out of nowhere, regardless of how wise you have been in life, the teacher says, don't pretend it will go away. Don't try and ignore it. But acknowledge that at the end of the day, your control over life is limited. You can't determine what times will befall you, whether good or bad. Consider what God has done, says the teacher. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. See, the truth is, we, we don't know what's going to happen to us. We live in a crooked, broken world. And the reason it's crooked and broken is because God has made it that way. We rebelled against him and he has cursed the world and the world is broken. He, but he is the one who is in control. Yet many of us live our, our, with our entire lives planned out as if we can determine everything that's going to befall us. Right up to, to what our family will be like and how our funeral will be conducted. And there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with being prepared. In fact, a part of being wise is being prepared. But if we do so to the extent that we think that we can control every aspect of our life, we're fools. This world is not ours. We do not own it. And yet our view of ourselves can often be so high that we don't really believe that. We can delude ourselves into thinking we're the masters of our destiny. We have control over our lives. In telling us to, to consider God, the teacher's saying, take your eyes off yourself and acknowledge the truth that this is God's world and that we are his creatures. He is in control, not us. But you know, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not morbid thinking. That's a tremendously liberating truth. Whatever happens to me is under the sovereign control of my Savior. The good times, the bad times. He has made both of them, and he is in control of both of them. The Apostle Paul, when he's considering God and his sovereignty over the hard times, says this in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, along with him graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future times, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wisdom, says the teacher, is accepting the limitations that you have no control 
over the times that befall you and humbly submitting yourself, your trust to the infinite creator God who is weaving together all the times in our life. Weaving together all the times for our ultimate good, as Paul will say in Romans 8. The same God who gave up his son so that we could be brought back to him. Hard times will not separate us from that. Place your plans, your trusts in his hands and accept your limitations. Thirdly and finally, the teacher tells us that wisdom is about accepting the fact that both our righteousness and our wisdom are limited. Verses 15 to 29. This is what the teacher is wrestling with in these final verses. And he begins by... Um, well, by posing a troubling observation that I'm, I'm sure resonates with many of us. Um, one of the great things about Ecclesiastes is, uh, when I've been chatting to people about it, is when we've been looking through it, they've been saying, it's just so true, it's what I feel often. And the teacher says this, in this meaningless, or better translated, mere breath of life of mine, I have seen both of these. I've seen the righteous perishing in their righteousness, and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Why is it that, that good people, people who, who, who seem to be doing well in life, why is it they often die young? And yet there's tyrants and horrible rulers and dictators and wicked people that just go on living. For the teacher, whether you're righteous or not, doesn't really have, or doesn't seem to have from his observation, any bearing on how long you can live in life. And therefore, he says this in verse 16, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. This is uh, one of these verses that the commentator was talking about that's extremely hard to understand. How can you be over-righteous? I think what the teacher is warning against is the kind of thinking that might have been prevalent to the people of his time. Uh, They thought that if if I just tried to be a better person, then I could have a longer life. And so they would come up with all these little rules and and try and become uh, uh, super righteous. We could use that term. They would be the kind of people that would try and be righteous, try and be wise in, in every area of life, where, where sort of righteousness and wisdom doesn't really factor in. The kind of people that would be like the Pharisees in Jesus' time. In uh, Matthew 23, verse 23, um, Jesus uh, sternly rebukes the Pharisees because they're so overly righteous that they tithe their spice rack. They've got their mint and their till and their cumin, all 10% taken off that. They're being righteous in an area of life that's not really anything to do with righteousness. In actual fact, they ended up neglecting some of the, the weightier points of the law in terms of justice and mercy. And by coming up with these rules, they've got this sort of super righteousness. And very quickly, the thinking can be that if we're like that, if we start imposing little rules that that make us look good and make us feel super righteous in life, the thinking will be that, well, God owes me. God should be kind to me. And we can use righteousness or our righteousness as a means of controlling how God should treat us. The teacher says, you'll destroy yourself if you live like that. Don't get me wrong, he says. Don't be wicked. Don't be over-wicked. Don't be a fool. 
But what you are to recognize, if you are wise, is that both your righteousness and your wisdom will always be limited. It's not something that can ever be fully attained. Verse 24, wisdom is profound and far off. It can never be fully comprehended. The teacher is wise, but even he can't understand wisdom. It's the irony of being wise. You know that your wisdom is limited. Verse 20, a very important verse, there is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. There is no such thing as a completely righteous man who never sins and does what is right. You see, he's not saying that we shouldn't strive for these things. We should most definitely thirst for righteousness, as Jesus puts it. But don't deceive yourself into thinking that you will ever achieve that goal. That's the escapist attitude. That's not real. And you know, the kind of person who who does uh, deceive himself into thinking that he's quite a a righteous, um, good uh, person... um, It's the kind of person that will be uh, quick to point out the faults in others without recognizing the faults within themselves. The teacher gives, I guess, an example of that in verse 21 and 22. Don't be surprised when you hear others speaking ill of you as if you would never do that. The teacher knows. He says, look in your heart. You've done that many times. You hear people gossiping about you, so you go and gossip about them about how they gossiped about you. He's looking for this righteousness within humanity. He goes on a quest. Verse 26 through to um, 29. Verse 26. (laughs) Uh, Sounds like he's had a bad experience with a woman. Um, uh, He's just talking there about... um, sexual temptation, I think, um, and that can be both male and female, uh, but for him it seems to be a woman there. And that, that sort of confusing bit at the end um, is about his quest for, for righteousness, for trying to find something upright within humanity. Um, now, he's not being sexist, as I said. Uh, literally, if you were to translate verse 28, the words upright, you'll see in your Bible, they've got those little brackets around them. That means that's not actually in the Hebrew text. Uh, Literally, verse 28 should read like this. I figured out one man out of a thousand, but I could not figure out any woman among them all. Hmm. I think many men here in their hearts are saying, Amen. He's saying, look, I figured out 99.99% of men. I don't have a clue. I can't understand how they work. Women, that completely eludes my grasp. The teacher just doesn't understand human beings. He doesn't understand how we work, what we are like. All he knows is that God made all of us, male and female, upright. And all of us, male and female, have gone in search of many schemes. In other words, we have turned our back on our Creator. We have gone away from Him and searched off in many schemes. Ecclesiastes, the entire book, really could be an exposition of Genesis chapter 3. This is what happened in Eden. We turned away from God, seeking to be wise in our own eyes, wanting to have ourselves exalted. The teacher was trying to get us to face the fact that nobody likes to admit we are sinful. I would hate it if you guys tonight could see, hear 
everything that I had said, everything that I had thought, everything that I had done, even just in the past week, I honestly could not speak to you and you honestly could not listen to me. You would not want to see what is inside me, the real me. But we have to accept this limitation because when we do, we will understand the magnitude of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our unrighteousness is a huge, huge problem. God's not, not passive to that. He has to punish it. He has to punish all forms of sin. But Jesus came for the very reason to take the punishment of all the wrongdoing that we have ever done in life so that we could have his righteousness. You see, verse 20, among humanity there is no one who is righteous. But there was one man who walked the earth who was perfectly righteous. And that is Jesus Christ. And his death on the cross is the means by which we can become righteous. That's why it's complete folly to trust in your own feeble, limited righteousness when you can have the righteousness of Christ. Don't be over-righteous, but embrace the righteous standing that you already have in Jesus Christ before God right now. Accept the fact that you can do nothing to earn God's favor and place all your trust and all your hope in the fact that he has done it for you. This, this entire chapter, Ecclesiastes 7, is difficult, but the teacher is just wanting us to get real. He's wanting us to get real about the limitations that we have in life. And in doing so, take your eyes off yourself. Place your eyes upon God because the folly of the sinful human heart is that we think that we are better, we think that we are more powerful than we actually are. We have this overblown picture of who we are. But the wisdom contained in this chapter is there to humble us with reality. Like the little boy that pointed out the glaringly obvious fact that the emperor had no clothes on, so too does the wisdom of the teacher point us to the obvious fact that we are frail, finite, sinful creatures whose life is nothing more than a mist. Are you accepting these limitations or are you working against them? Are you ignoring them? Because if you've not got Jesus, how do you deal with that? It is morbid. If you've not got Jesus, it really is morbid. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is not some pat answer to try and numb the force of these truths. But God has placed these limitations on us for the very reason that we will come to recognize we need him. He is the one who is in charge. He is the one who is infinite. All of us here, I'm sure, are guilty of having a picture of God in which we are big and he is small. Our, our lives are all that matters and God's somehow there to serve us. And that's so wrong. And if that's you, use this chapter to, to reorientate your understanding of yourself and therefore your understanding of God. He is big and you are small. Following Jesus means that we can learn to love the limitations of life. Yes, I am limited. I am going to die. But I follow one who has conquered death. Yes, I will face hardships and temptations that are beyond my control, but I worship one who is in control of all the times, using them for my ultimate good. And yes, I am limited in my righteousness and my wisdom. My king came to remove sin and give me his righteousness. Be wise 
And let your wisdom humble, humble you as you see your limitations so that it will drive you to place all your hope and all your purpose on life into the one who is unlimited in his power and his love, our great king, the embodiment of all that is wise, the Lord Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, um, we long to be wise as that verse that we read at the start of Ephesians reminds us, we want to make the best use of our life. We want to make the best use of the time that you have given us. Father, help us to get a correct understanding that you are the creator and we are the ones who have been created by you. We are not the rulers of this world. We are not kings. We are not infinite. We won't live forever. But you, O Lord, are the great infinite King who is in control of everything. Lord, may we see our limitations. And Lord, may we understand them, not so that we can be in despair, but so that we can rejoice in what you have done for us. You have shown us such unlimited love and compassion, despite the fact that this is what we are. And even though we are frail and weak and our life is but a mist, we know that if we trust you, Lord Jesus, we will be with you forever and eternity. And that you look upon us because you have clothed us in your righteousness and you see us as being perfect because you have done it all for us. Lord, help us to be humble, to recognize who we are and to just want to know more of you to want to learn more of your wisdom and to live a life that, that is not escaping reality, but is a life of wisdom. Thank you for the teacher and what he teaches us in this chapter. In Jesus' name, amen.